This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a very interesting show today. And, uh, you know, we're continuing to do our Arab Talk podcasts and uh, shows despite the fact that, uh, you know, we keep rolling through the pandemic even though 2 million Americans are getting injections per day, the United States is still at about only 10% being vac- totally vaccinated at this time. So we've, we've got a ways to go. We're just past the 50th day of the Biden administration, so we're halfway to their 100 days. They've passed a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, which we're, we're not going to talk about today because there's so many other things going on. We're going to focus a bit more today on Palestine. And you did a really interesting interview having to do with a defamation lawsuit that an Israeli soldier brought against an American citizen that was pretty shocking. And uh, I think our listeners and viewers are going to find this interview and our discussion very compelling. That's right, Jess. I mean, we've had this discussion before you know, we've hosted uh, Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi. She went through uh, two lawsuits, and there is another pending one that she's undertaking a third lawsuit against San Francisco State University, but two lawsuits that uh, one of them named her and she won it. Uh, it's the same scenario, attempts to stifle free speech in the United States. This is, this is no different. This is another way, another attempt to stifle yet another activists, uh, just like they've been trying to do with academics and journalists and so right. forth. So uh, let's uh, watch this interview with the Palestinian-American activist Suhair Nafal and her lawyer, Haytham Faraj. Californian Judge Craig Griffin rejected and dismissed a lawsuit and an attempt to apply Israeli laws in his Orange County Superior Court. Rebecca Rumshitskaya, a.k.a. Rebecca Ram, an Israeli soldier filed a $6 million defamation action against Palestinian-American activist Suhair Nafal. Rumshitskaya lost her case, even though her lawyer urged the U.S. judge to apply Israeli defamation law, which punishes criticism of Israel by up to one year in prison. This is not the first time we witness attempts to silence Israel's critics in the United States, especially on college campuses, as we've discussed on this very show, this topic extensively with Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi from San Francisco State University, who herself also defeated a lawsuit brought against her by the notorious Lawfare Project. Joining us from Southern California to discuss her great victory, Suhair Nafal and her lawyer Haytham Faraj, Welcome to Arab Talk, Suhair and Haytham. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jamal. Uh, pleasure to be here. Suhair, first, congratulations on your victory. Please tell our audience about what prompted this frivolous lawsuit. I posted a post back in 2018 when Razan al-Najjar was assassinated in the fields uh, during the March of Return protests in Gaza where there were protests happening every Friday just to bring awareness to the siege on Gaza. Uh, And each Friday there were casualties, there were Israeli snipers killing peaceful protesters, uh, men, women, children, and the atrocities were just right there in plain view for everybody to see. Uh, The the Friday that that Razan was murdered, I mean, obviously, I think that that particular piece of news actually made it mainstream. Just to be clear, Razan Najjar is a paramedic who was helping the injured uh, men and women uh, during that period. Correct. Uh, I, along with everybody on social media, posted the news of her assassination, of her, of the IDF uh, murdering her, shooting her in the back for God knows what reason. I also was seeing a lot of posts coming down my timeline from other folks who are supporters of Palestine showing the, the news of her of her death. One of the posts that came down that I saw on my timeline was unrelated, obviously, to 
Razan's murder, it was a post shared by one of my Facebook friends of the IDF page that had featured a picture of Rebecca, the American girl, and the caption of that picture pretty much was stating that Rebecca, you know, they're proud of Rebecca for moving to Israel and joining the IDF from America. Uh, she's been in the education sector of the IDF and has decided to go into the field. And of course, that obviously angered me uh, because, as you know, I can't understand how U.S. citizens are allowed to join the IDF um, and move to a land that they have no ties to, essentially, to contribute in the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. So I took this girl's picture and I posted it next to Razan's picture. And in the caption, I said something along the lines of, on the left, you have Rebecca from the United States, whose career choice is to join a foreign army to contribute in the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. And on the, on the right, you have a young woman whose career choice is to be a paramedic, you know, Palestinian, uh, I identified her, Razan, and to save the lives of her fellow Palestinians during, during a march and in turn gets murdered by the IDF. So it was a clear comparison. It, there was nowhere in the article or in the uh, post, in the caption that I said that it was Rebecca who murdered Razan. Uh, so unfortunately I have a lot of followers and friends who don't speak proper English or read proper English. I think the translator, the Facebook translator sometimes doesn't translate correctly. And they shared my post, changed my words and stated that it was Rebecca who killed Razan. And I saw, I saw the, um, the post get shared everywhere. So I knew it was going to be a problem and eventually it just went viral. And it was shared on, you know, many, many pages, pro-Palestinian pages um, that had hundreds of thousands of followers and the rest is history. So that's kind of how it all how it all started. It was just a huge misunderstanding. Several hours later, I went and um, posted another post, making sure to let everyone know that the post that's going viral was not intended to point fingers at Rebecca, but she killed Razan, although what Rebecca is doing, in my opinion, is illegal. Uh, but, you know, obviously it was too late at that point. Right. We're going to uh, we'll go back to more details about this. I want to go uh, to Haytham now. Uh, in his ruling, uh, the judge also granted Suhair anti-slap uh, motion and said that uh, Rumshiskaya must pay her legal costs. Uh, please uh, just briefly explain to our audience what is anti-slap laws and why such uh, and why uh, was this such an important ruling? Uh, yes, thank you. First, uh, I, I want to extend my condolences to Razan and all the martyrs of Israeli violence uh, in occupied Palestine. Uh, the judge in his ruling, well, th this was a sort of a two-part case. The judge dismissed the lawsuit against Suhair, but we also decided to go on the offensive. Uh, so we we, we opposed the lawsuit by filing a what's called a, uh, a demur or a motion to dismiss. Uh, but we also filed our own counterattack in which we took the position that the attempt is not really defamation. The attempted lawsuit is not really defamation, but that it seeks to deter or prevent political speech. And of course, this is political speech. These are events that are in the public sphere. These are events of public interest. Uh, the, uh, the plaintiff in this case, uh, Ms. Ramsushkaya, alleged that uh, Suhair was in fact a, a social media uh, personality, that she has a large following, uh, that her postings are viewed by thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people which placed this firmly in the sphere of a public interest uh, issue. And so uh, our position was that even if what they are alleging is true, which is not, Suhair's posting 
is something that is protected under the, the California Constitution and uh, the attempt to oppress it or, or to curb it is an unlawful uh, attempt that is uh, actionable under California law, which allows us to seek our costs and fees. The judge agreed with us. Uh, he analyzed the Israeli law, which they sought to uh, have implemented in, in, in this case, decided that uh, rightfully, uh, uh, Israel is not the United States. We have a clear First Amendment right to criticize our government. In fact, in the weighing of the balance and balancing the First Amendment rights and limitations, and you have some limitations about what you can say about a private person, but when it comes to criticizing a government, there are new limitations in the United States, certainly not against our government and arguably not against any other government. And so he rightfully saw it as an attempt to uh, silence Suhair and uh, criticizing Israeli conduct uh, that is protected speech, which is actionable uh, and uh, allowed us to, uh, we haven't filed that motion yet. We will be pursuing our costs and fees, but it essentially, uh, he granted our motion uh, to find that uh, the attempt is an unlawful attempt to uh, curb uh, political speech uh, and, and uh, granted Suhair uh, what will be her, uh, her costs and fees. Well, I mean, I was reading some of uh, the quotes in uh, previous articles, uh, the argument of the Israeli lawyer uh, Nitsana Darshan Littner, and this were, this is kind of used time and time again, the conflation of the criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. And, and this is what he said, which is really horrible. It seems that we're going back to the protocols of the elders of Zion and to the anti-Semitic blood libels that belong to the past. Rebecca and her family have received death threats only because she, decide, she decided to join the IDF. I mean, uh, as a lawyer, I mean, and I'm sure you're following on, on all these cases, uh, um, the United States, uh, people who, uh, who you know, uh, are surrogates to the Israeli lobby are trying to pass these laws uh, by conflating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism and, and silencing academics, they're silencing activists like Suhair, they're silencing, you know, lawyers. And uh, where is that going, in your opinion? You know, there's, there's, there's the court of public opinion and there are the, the courts of laws. Uh, look, I think the, uh, the decision by the Eighth Circuit uh, maybe six or seven weeks ago on the issue of uh, you know, restricting people from engaging in um, economic activity or social activity or educational activities because their conduct has been uh, defined as anti-Semitic by some legislative body is simply not going to pass in the United States. And uh, I, I invite, you know, I, I think what I'd like to do, rather than defeat these attempts at the legislative level, uh, I think we just need to wage our, our battles in court so that courts come out and say these attempts are unconstitutional. It just doesn't work in the United States. You cannot legislate political opinions. You cannot uh, legislate people how people uh, view certain public events. And so that it, it's, it's, it's an attempt to try and prevent the conversation from happening. And it is happening. It's causing the conversation to, uh, to be engaged in a lot of places that otherwise wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have been engaged in. So uh, where, where is it going? You know, I, I can't see the future, but I think you're going to continue to have these types of battles in courts. And I think judges, jurists, good jurists like our judge will rule on the law and say that is uh, that, these laws, these attempts are not constitutional. The uh, former uh, Israeli soldier, uh, uh, Shiskaya, um, in also in her claim says, uh, or her lawyer says that this uh, exalted a toll on her, both physically and emotionally, and she 
suffered and she was harassed and, and so forth. However, I mean, uh, you've been living so here under this uh, threat of a lawsuit. I mean, it's not a joke to be dragged into court with a $6 million lawsuit. Uh, how did this affect you? Um, it was stressful. You know, part of me felt fairly confident that I um, hired an, an attorney that was, was, you know, very confident that we were going to get it thrown out. I had a team of my friends, uh, activists around me who reassured me and comforted me. But, but you know, I, I, I struggled with, with, with keeping the anxiety <laughs> away and um, the fear. Uh, I'd say 50% of the time I was confident and I knew it was going to be uh, thrown out. And then 50% of the time I was pretty nervous. I wasn't surprised that they were going to come after me. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was pretty scary. I mean, I think any, I think anybody in my shoes would be would be anxious about this. Now there is a connection between this and, of course, the BDS, the boycott, uh, divestment, and sanction movement uh, against Israel that has been uh, uh, growing uh, not only in the United States but throughout the world, and uh, we've been seeing. Uh, you know, uh, state legislators and others try to uh, impose fines and sometimes even jail sentences on activists. We've had uh, on our show, we talked about the case of a teacher in, in Texas who in her own contract was uh, asked in, in print to sign on not by cutting Israel. Do you think this will have, for example, an effect on, on you, Suhair, on, on, on activists, uh, Palestinian-American activists, and their supporters to kind of um, steer away from the BDS movement? No, because all I am doing is sharing content that is legitimate, content off of your page, off of the pages of IMEU, the pages of uh, MIMO, I'm just sharing the truth. And last I, <laughs> I checked, it wasn't illegal to share the truth here in the United States, right? So it's not going to de deter me. With regard to BDS, all I do is share content about BDS news that is good news or bad news. So all I'm doing is reporting facts. I'm just a mini <laughs> reporter on my social media private page that's actually public. So I don't know what I'm doing that is such a threat. I'm, I live in a, in a country and in a state that affords me free speech and I'm protected by the first amendment. So what, what, what do they have on me? I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing. Hopefully I'll have a bigger following each day. I encourage everyone on social media who are in my position, who have time to share content to do this. I think we have become sort of a bona fide army on social media, a pro-Palestinian army. And I'm proud to be in this movement. And I think it's just going nowhere but up. So I'm not going to stop and I'm gonna encourage everybody to continue to do it. Just share the truth, just expose what's happening. What are we doing wrong? We're just reporting. The mainstream media is afraid to do it for reasons we know why. So why can't we do it? We have platforms, we have social media, and that's what the purpose of social media is, is to share content. Well, I think this is actually a very important topic that I've been probably uh, talking about it for maybe two uh, decades or more. Uh, we watched all, we watch always, whether during the uh, war on Lebanon or the war on Gaza and so forth, uh, what I call them, um, Falafel pundits, uh, you know, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and others, they will invite anyone to talk about Palestinians or talk about the issues of Lebanese, but they never have Palestinian Americans talking about what's happening in Palestine, you know. And, and you're absolutely right. It's the, what I call it, the poor man or poor woman media. And that's the only thing that's left for Palestinian Americans is to. Uh, you know, go on Facebook or Twitter. But how, uh, also now there is censorship. And I think you yourself, ha uh, you have been censored yourself. I have been censored. 
posts have been removed. Um, I mean, what's ex- what's your experience with this, Suhair? I keep posting. They they can remove as many posts as they'd like, but once again, all I'm doing is sharing facts. Some of the posts that they have removed may or may not have had content or verbiage in there that may have been questionable with regard to their their rules of things that we should or should not say. I think there are many ways around writing uh, a post, uh, a caption on a picture that that is not going to be deemed offensive and the message can still get out. So I encourage people on Facebook who continue to get censored, just kind of watch your words. The truth is, is, is right there. I mean, there's, there's no reason to sort of pepper your messages with anything that may or may not sound derogatory or racist. Um, Just kind of be honest and, and, and be professional in the way you write. And again, Truth is all we're sharing, so, and facts. Haytham, in my field, and I'm sure in yours, I mean, uh, I was taught the that the First Amendment is uh, sanctimonious. Like, it's one of the most important amendments to the U.S. Constitution. I can criticize the President of the United States. I can decide to go to Safeway and buy cut... Uh, Coca-Cola, or I can boycott McDonald's and whatever. Nobody will come after me. But the minute that you mention Israel in the equation, all hell breaks loose. Is the First Amendment under threat? I mean, for people in your field, in the legal field, between your own circles, is this a discussion? No, it's the First Amendment for for a reason, right? It was the most important right articulated by the uh, drafters of the Constitution. Uh, It it wasn't that that it was an oversight. It was kind of understood that they want to protect the right to express oneself and to engage in free speech. And so they went back and when they created the Bill of Rights, that was the first right they articulated. It uh, It is still intact. It is not in jeopardy. But you bring up an important point, and that is, that is a conversation that no one is really engaging, engaging in. Why is it perfectly okay to criticize administration after administration, decision, American decision after American political decision, to uh, protest every war that we have had in the United States, uh, from Korea on, Vietnam, uh, our, 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 our involvement in Bosnia, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, remember the Bush years, we were in the streets, but it seems that the media is unable to tolerate any criticism of Israeli actions, and they always want to reframe it uh, in terms of anti-Semitism. And, and frankly, uh, you know, I, I, I no longer understand what anti-Semitism is. It has been so conflated with proper, legitimate conduct that we have lost what anti-Semitism means. And frankly, the very people that are going out and labeling us as anti-Semites are partnering up with true anti-Semites, white supremacists who would deny people of color their rights everywhere around the world. I mean, these those are the anti-Semites that the people attacking Suhair are perfectly willing to partner up with and label others anti-Semites for very legitimate political speech. The short answer to your question, Jamad, is no, the, the First Amendment is not in jeopardy. Uh, we sometimes are in an echo chamber. We engage in this these discussions with people who share our views, and then we have the battles with the same people who we always battle. But I think the outside world, uh, when they hear the truth, Will line up where they where we where they should uh, if they understand justice or, or, or feel or have a connection to justice. But again, the the story of Palestine and Israel is is kind of limited and uh, to to a certain population. Uh, when people begin to hear about it and learn about it, they tend to fall on the side of the palest the Palestinians and their rights because it's it's kind of simple unless there's some ideological reason not to. Let me touch on one topic that I want to go back a question or two. Speaking truth, right? Uh, Sahar was talking about if you post the truth, then there's nothing to be afraid of. Well, what is fascinating, what 
I learned in this lawsuit, and I didn't know that before. I mean, I follow Israel-Palestine news, but I did not know this. Israel defamation law does not recognize the truth as a defense to a claim of defamation. <laughs> now, now let that sink in for a minute. Okay, you're, you're a journalist. Truth among reasonable people, among the reasoned world, among civil societies, truth is always a defense to defamation, to slander, to libel. If what I'm saying is truth, then what I'm saying is not actionable, mm -hmm. except in Israel. Truth is only a defense to a claim of defamation if it's in the public interest. Right. And the public interest is not defined. So arguably, the government of Israel can come in and say any criticism of Israel, even if it's truthful, is against the public interest and therefore is defamatory. And then you have a case. And that's what they tried to do here, by the way. They they could have filed this lawsuit using U.S. defamation laws against Suhair a couple of years ago. It would have died. It, it wouldn't have gotten beyond the first phase. What they sought to do, and as I said, this is not about Suhair. What they sought to do is establish a precedent where they apply Israeli law Mm -hmm. So that now courts have to analyze the Israeli sort of elements for a violation of defamation, where we're now saying, what is in the public interest of Israel? And truth no longer matters. And, and, and that, I, I think that's why these things, you know, had this case died early on and never seen the light of day, we wouldn't have discovered that truth. But by moving forward, we got to understand a little bit more about the incredibly unreasonable, incredibly unjust law that says truth is truth is not a defense to defamation unless it's in the public interest of Israel. Fascinating. It is fascinating and, and, and many uh, actually aspects of it. You talk about Israeli law, but also I follow the Israeli media and I read uh, Hebrew and actually uh, this subject is, uh, you know, trying to uh, silence critics is very important in Israel when it comes to Jewish Israelis. They have a big wide space to, to use and they only go after uh, Palestinian, uh, uh, whether in the West Bank and others, uh, as far as arresting them or bringing defamation cases against them. It doesn't, it doesn't happen that frequently in, in Israel. So here, I want to give you the final word. What are your plans next? Now you have this victory. Uh, what are your final thoughts? First of all, I want to acknowledge Razan's, Razan Najjar's family and hopefully they're they're watching what's happening. I uh, her brother reached out to me yesterday. It was lovely talking to him. He's so happy that um, that her name is back, uh, sort of in the media. Uh, this is all for her. With regard to what I'm going to do next, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and hopefully do more of it and encourage others to do it. Um, and just take it day by day. I'm not going to be frightened. I. I knew even, God forbid, had this gone not my had this not gone my way, I, I don't believe that was going to stop me from continuing to expose the truth about Israel's atrocities and, and war crimes and ethnic cleansing. I'm a Palestinian. Uh, I'm the child of Palestinian activists. Um, I'm very, very proud to be a Palestinian as much as I'm proud to be an American. And this is this is my my existence. I have no other choice but to speak up uh, about my people and our plight. So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. So here, Nafal, Haytham Faraj, thank you for coming on Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco, eighty nine point five FM. Thank you. Thank you for having thank us. You, it was a pleasure being with you. Keep up the good work. Jamal, that was uh, Suhair uh, Nafal, Palestinian-American activist with her attorney. And I have to tell you, you and I have been doing these kinds of um, interviews and shows and talking about uh, the Israeli, what I, what I will call their lawfare, their use of legal means to stifle Palestinians, not just uh, in Palestine, but in the United States and all over the world. This, in my opinion, was among the most outrageous so hair, you know, obviously won in court. But how crazy is it? it 
that an Israeli IDF soldier sues an American citizen and wants to use the Israeli defamation law in an American court. That is the height of um, uh, uh, just like colonial mentality that we can use any law we want, bring it into a U.S. system and try to use an Israeli law to sue an American citizen. Totally outrageous, but typical for the Israelis. Yeah, I would say, I mean, this is very typical, as you said, not only for the Israelis, but also for their surrogates right here in, in the United States, including, by the way, politicians and the U.S. Congress, because as you and I have been talking about, they've been trying to kind of squeeze in under the radar these laws, anti-BDS laws, anti-First Amendment laws, basically, uh, to um, shelter Israel and give it a pass. And, and we've talked about several cases like this. But this one, the new twist is they want to apply Israeli laws in the United States. Against I mean, an American citizen. Against, exactly. So, so I'm so grateful uh, to uh, Judge California Judge Craig Griffin uh, for rejecting and dismiss, dismissing this But lawsuit. Jamal, why should we be grateful? This is an American well, system. I'm, well, this listen. is an American system of justice. It's an American citizen. It's American law. We, I mean, we're grateful that he ruled and did the right thing. But it's kind of crazy that we have to be grateful that a judge would apply American law and not Israeli law in a situation where an American citizen is being sued. It, to my mind, it's you know beyond beyond the pale. Well, in these days, you have to be grateful because you don't know the unexpected might happen. I mean, That's true. when I hear Senate, listen, there are senators, there are congressmen and congresswomen who want to apply Israeli law, who want to give Israel billions and billions of dollars every year without any accountability. And there are those who invite them and remember Benjamin Netanyahu to address a joint session of Congress without the approval of the President of the United States at that time was Barack Obama. So I'm not going to take anything for granted. That's right. And, and that's why I've said that I am I'm grateful and I'm happy that this particular judge knew how to apply the Constitution and protected the First Amendment. Well, Jamal, um You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM here in San Francisco. We're broadcasting uh, throughout the Bay Area, the United States, and internationally right now. But, uh, you know, keeping on the topic of Palestine, here's some breaking news for you. Have What do you think about elections in Palestine? There hasn't been an election in Palestine for... Oh, God, how many years has it been now, Jamal? Is this something that is just, is this something that's just being played? Is this legit? Are the Palestinians really going to have elections finally after so many years? Well, I'm hoping so. And and you're, you're absolutely right. It's been many years, but it seems to be a little bit different this time because we've had these kind of false starts a few times saying that we're going to start elections in a couple of months or three months, etc. Uh, in 2016, they were planning to have elections, never happened. You know, every time you have these uh, false uh, starts, but it seems now that there is a lot of uh, things going. And we'll talk about that because a lot of people, some are new and some, of course, from uh, old faces, are uh, jockeying to have a placement in um, these elections. So the biggest story uh, today, Jess, is that the uh, Palestinian movement, Fatah, sacked uh, one of the most prominent names, who is Nasser al-Qudwa. So for those who don't know who is Nasser al-Qudwa, right. he's the nephew of Yasser Arafat. He was the Palestinian or the PLO representative at the United Nations uh, for many, many years. And he has been challenging uh, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas and refused to run uh, on a single election list that represents only 
uh, all Fatah candidates because you know Fatah is the uh, party of uh, of course Mahmoud Abbas so he says I want to run as an independent and uh, he has a party called the National Democratic Assembly NDA and he has been actively recruiting members of Fatah who disagree with Abbas so we see a split here within the party and this is very important so um, yesterday they just fired him basically I mean this guy has been all wow. his life a Fatah member and they said unless he changes what he's doing he's, he's going to be out there was a letter uh, I, uh, I put the letter on, on Twitter a copy of the letter uh, which gave Fatah gave uh, Fatah actually I should say central committee gave Nasr al-Qudwa 48 hours to retract his position and align his candidacy under the umbrella of Abbas. I mean, listen, there what are... What a joke. If you go uh, to Palestinian sites in Arabic, you find a lot of jokes about this, a lot of cartoons. Like one cartoon actually, which kind of, uh, um, kind of made me laugh, is that they're giving Palestinians a Palestinian going to vote, and there are two... Uh, you know, <laughs> electoral boxes there, and one choice says vote for Mahmoud Abbas, and says the other one vote for Abu Mazen. <laughs> so your choice is between Mahmoud Abbas and Abu Mazen. And yeah, so I've seen a lot of cartoons like this. So, uh, however you feel, you're feeling about Mahmoud Abbas or Fatah or Hamas. I think Palestinians now they're thinking it's about time to have a more than one party, more than two parties, more than they have, they want other choices. Sure. So I'm noticing that we have a lot of people jumping, you know, in, in, in the midst now. Some people are also calling on nominating Marwan al-Barghouti. Right. Who is the Fatah leader who is now has been, uh, he's a long time Israel, in Israeli prison to, to basically you know, to join the race. And so that that actually throws a big, uh, you know, wrench in, in the whole thing if, I mean, he's very, very, uh, well, he's very, very popular. Very popular. He, but he'd, it would probably, be the first. he'd probably win if he ran. Yeah, well, and also would be the, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's also throwing a monkey wrench in Israel's uh, kind of thinking because they want to keep him in jail. If he wins, it will be the first time that a Palestinian leader wins. Uh, you know, uh, it will be the first time a candidate in the history of the Israeli occupation, I should say, to run for the highest post for of the Palestinian leadership from behind bars, and and especially if if he wins, then you also have changes happening. Uh, Hamas also there is some jockeying in uh, for power. Uh, within you know within Hamas and and uh, Dahlan, Mahmoud, you know remember Mahmoud Dahlan, right? But I and thought he, he had, was in the Gulf. Is he back? Is well, he doesn't back? matter where he's. No, no, he's not. So he's also back. His name is back in in these mid uh, in these lists circulating. Of course, he had uh, tense relationship with Abbas and was expelled. He was expelled. So. So just like Al-Qudwa, what they're trying to do with Al-Qudwa, Dahlan was expelled from Fatah in 2011. And his, he was, you know, and he's been living, as you said, uh, in, in the Gulf. Nevertheless, he does have a block, a voting block, and he has uh, a fellowship. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not like he, he's not popular, but so his name is there. Um, you know, as well. And last, I should say, but <laughs> again, not least, is now former uh, Prime Minister Salam Fayyad. You remember him? Oh, Salam okay. Fayyad. I thought he was long retired, Jamal. I'm so surprised to hear his. Well, you should have heard about him uh, at least last in the past couple of years because he was at Princeton. Right. So that kind of gels with, with what you're saying, that he's, he's kind of retired from politics, but he's not. He was, uh, I don't know, he was teaching or, uh, on a fellowship right here in the United States, uh, you wow. know, at Princeton. And so the latest thing is that uh, he announced that he'll submit a list of independent candidates uh, 
for the May, I should say, May 22nd uh, legislative elections. And quoting from him, he said his list will be of independent faces that have had a presence in Palestinian life. And of course, for those uh, people who remember Salam Fayyad uh, as a prime minister, but he also is a former International Monetary Fund official. And he was before that the finance minister that George W. Bush fell in love with because he kind of cleaned up the uh, uh, Palestinian well, yeah, Authority was... financial affairs and and he put the budget on on the website and and fought for transparency. So Salam Fayyad, in my opinion, I mean, look, I mean, he's an experienced uh, politician, having spent time, but but he is probably the most popular internationally and especially in the West. And but he might he might even States. be the most qualified too, Jamal. And he has 1.7 million followers on. Uh, on social media. Okay. So even though he's outside politics, but don't be surprised. I mean, if he, he's throwing so, his hat in But in Jamal, I have, a, I have a bigger question for you. <clears throat> Usually when the Palestinians call for elections, it's because of some pressure externally, either from funders like the United States or the EU or something like that. There's some sort of political pressure being brought to bear on the Palestinians to have elections. So why is this coming up now? What's happening uh, in the Palestinian context locally and internationally that this is coming now? Stagnation. I would say stagnation. Nothing has been happening. Everything has been stagnating for the past years. No elections. No movement. Uh, in fact, there is regress when it comes to uh, the negotiations right. uh, with the Israelis. Under Trump, the Palestinians were basically shoved aside. They, they, the economy they, is doing terrible. The economy is doing terribly. COVID is raging all over. That's a whole different actually discussion by itself. Right. And Mahmoud Abbas, frankly, I mean, even for those who support him, they say it's about time that we see some new faces. Now, the only thing when I named all these people, unfortunately, Jess, they're all old faces. So, so yes, I mean, we may, maybe it's like uh, we're re the reshuffling of the um, whatever musical chairs, but it's definitely I haven't so far seen a new, fresh, young blood uh, surfacing. The only encouraging thing I would say, Salam Fayyad, he's saying that this is what he wants to do. But his critics, I was reading uh, actually a quote from one of his critics, and justifiably so, and he said, okay, you know, Fayyad is a, is, is, a, is a nice guy, blah, blah, blah. But he was in power for eight years, not just as prime minister, he meant also finance minister. He also was at uh, in the legislative uh, council. Right. So he's a fabulous, he describes, he's a fabulous par, uh, person. He was in charge of uh, leading the country for over eight years. It is easy to criticize the mistakes he pointed out, but he is partially responsible for problems he created as prime minister. So if you serve, as you and I know, you come back with baggage. Absolutely. So all these names have some hurdles to overcome. And I think if you talk, you know, talking about stagnation, I think Palestinians would like to see some change, some uh, some change. And I don't know if they're, they're going to get it, but at least uh, there is an excitement that uh, at least elections are on the calendar. Yeah. Because well, the uh, but they're very hesitant because they've seen those elections been canceled sure. many times before. And, and there's always the chance that these will get canceled also, Jamal. But I also believe that in terms of timing, it's kind of an interesting time right now because the Trump, having elections during the Trump administration would have been totally useless, obviously. But because we have the Biden administration, we have a new State Department with career individuals instead of Trump appointees who know nothing about international politics. We don't have Jared Kushner trying to, you know, solve the 
grand piece uh, problem of the uh, century, thankfully. Um, the timing of doing the elections right now may, might be a good strategic move. Netanyahu is weak. The Israelis are in a weakened position, because, relatively speaking, because of the Biden administration. And we have a new State Department in the United States. So maybe this timing isn't such a bad thing, given the alignment of uh, everything that's going on right now. Well, we're going to keep an eye on and, and talk about it more in, in details. We have a few minutes, uh, uh, Jess. Today, Thursday, marks exactly one year since the coronavirus was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. I want to backtrack a little bit before the um, March 11 date. Uh, back in February 7th, uh, February 19th, and even in early March. And this is what Trump said. He said, the coronavirus would weaken when we get into April in the warmer weather. That has a very negative effect on that, and that type of a virus will disappear. Now, um, I just wanted to throw that in. It's yeah, a year since, since, since and, the World and, Health Organization. But since Let's that reflect time, on this. Yeah, five, this. Over 500,000 Americans have lost their lives because of the incompetence and denial of uh, the ex-president Donald Trump and his administration of uh, what I would call medical fools who tried to pull one over on the people of the United States by telling them that everything was fine, it would just go away. And because of that, we lost so many months where we could have gotten a handle on, you know, and ahead of some of the devastating impact of the coronavirus. So hearing those words right now just brings chills up my spine. But I'll also say that even though we're vaccinating 2 million people a day right now in the United States, I still feel really concerned about the mutations and the variants that are out there. It's still a race, Jamal, between, you know, only 10% of our population is vaccinated. We need 70 to 85% to get herd immunity. And we don't even know, you know, these, these, these mutations that are going out, the variants are, are, are in a race against that uh, vaccination race. So, it's neck and neck right now. And if we don't get a lot more people vaccinated, Jamal, I'm just afraid that we might lose this race yet again. I mean, you saw these pictures, Jamal, people in Texas, people in Florida, they've said no more mask mandates. People are partying like there's no tomorrow. So I, I still think we run the risk of a fourth surge of the coronavirus mutations coming up in the next couple of months. So I'm still concerned. I should add that uh, President Biden uh, will address the nation tonight, uh, you know, so we'll also see what he's going to say about that. Right. Uh, so businesses, just restaurants, uh, schools are starting to open Reopen, up. Reopen, right. Yeah. So uh, at the same time, you're absolutely right. We're still like 10% vaccinating uh, people in this country. However, uh, they've set a record the other day. Over two and a half million people were vaccinated in one day. So are, are we going to see light at the end of the tunnel or people should be just apprehensive and, and hunker down a little bit longer? So Jamal, if you ask me to bet, take a bet, do I bet against the virus being smarter than us? Or <laughs> do, do I kind of Am I concerned about the virus being smarter than us? I'm still concerned about the virus. I'm still concerned about mutations. There could be some light at the end of the tunnel if people don't do stupid, crazy things. So if you're going to go party with 100 people with masks off and you haven't been vaccinated, there's a, there's a real chance that the extent of the virus could continue and we could get another surge. So I would say get vaccinated, get any vaccine you can, wear a mask if you're around people that you don't know or if you're in closed situation and just continue to be careful because I'm afraid that we still might be in the eye of the storm. It looks calm, 
but there's still this storm that's swirling around us. So be careful. One, one last quick question. Uh, I've been noticing uh, on the media, uh, they're starting to, to uh, people to discuss uh, mental health Absolutely. during this period. So that's kind of like this discussion. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll take some people are just, just uh, can't cope, uh, you know, losing a job, losing loved ones. Oh, I, I read the report that about yeah. one third of Americans either have lost someone to the coronavirus or know of someone who have lost someone from the coronavirus. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal. We may have to take another show just on the topic of mental health, because as it turns out, when you look at the impact of closing schools for one year, the impact of all the economic devastation brought on by the coronavirus, the isolation that the entire country has had to go through, the long-term mental health consequences may be with us for a generation. The impact on kids, missing school, suicide rates among children and adolescents are so much higher. Uh, this is, even if we see the light at the tunnel, Jamal, we're unfortunately going to be with the mental health consequences for another generation. It's, it's very devastating. So the message also, another message uh, for uh, to minority groups, because they are apprehensive about getting the vaccine, vaccine or... Get the or vaccine. Has, get the vaccine. To my brothers and sisters, whatever community you're in, I understand that you feel that, you know, you, you, you may not trust the government or trust the vaccines because of what has happened, especially in the African-American community who have been used as guinea pigs by this government historically. I get it. I understand it. But I'm... I'm encouraging, if not begging, all people, if you get access to the vaccine, take it. It's much better to have a side effect to a vaccine than to die from COVID and get sick from COVID. So I'm really hoping that all of our brothers and sisters, despite their legitimate concerns, will go out and get vaccinated. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download all our shows there, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.